My daughter Casey left home for her sophomore year of college yesterday, and I'm having a bit of a tough time with it. Casey was born at 5 pounds 14 ounces, our first child. When she was an infant, she had a series of febrile seizures. I'll never forget the first one. I was holding her in the kitchen, and she clenched her fists, fell backwards, and began to turn blue. My wife laid her down on the floor as I called 911. I stood outside our house, screaming, Where the fuck are they? I honestly thought she was dying. Through the years, Casey has brought me endless joy. She knew all the words to Kiss's rock bottom at age two. She used to do my hair and makeup. We take a weekly trip to the mall, daddy-daughter excursions, and pretend to shop at Pottery Barn and Sephora before getting pretzels and ice cream. I watched her stumble through ballet, tiptoe through acting, soar through high school water polo. I've laughed with her, I've cried with her, I've carried her on my shoulders too many times to count. And now, once again, she's gone. And I'm heartbroken. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Candace Buckner, the exceptional Washington Post sports columnist. This is episode number 277. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Candace, I have to say, I've done about 276 of these, and you are the first time one person who's ever done it in a muscle shirt, and I just want to comment. <laughs> okay, so back four and a half years ago, I had you on this podcast at a time when I did not do return guests. And then recently I was like, I want to do, I like the idea of doing return guests. And I had you on at the time you were a wizard's beat writer for the Washington Post. And here you sit now as a columnist for the Washington Post. How big of a transition is it to become a columnist? Yeah, it's, it's it was something to be perfectly honest with you. I, I didn't want this job when it was pitched to me sometime last summer. I was like, nah, because um, my whole vision of a columnist was, you have to have an opinion on everything. And I, I simply don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent my whole career writing, reporting, trying, really trying to um, understand that my badge was uh, a privilege and I was in that locker room to, uh, to help the fans and the readers understand what's happening. So I, want, I wanted to say out of the way. And the columnist, uh, I wrote a column today and I really don't like writing about myself, but I wrote about myself. I don't think I'm that interesting. And that's not me being humble. That's me being honest. And so after spending literally my entire career trying to stay out of the way, it it has been a transition. It still is. It's been a year now and I'm still learning on the job. So I guess I had to get comfortable with. um, So I do have opinions. It's just not I don't have takes on everything. And that was something I didn't want to. I didn't want to be a take artist. and that's that's I had a very narrow view of, co- of column writing, and that's that's on me. But um, expanding my thoughts, expanding what I feel about writing, what I feel about the world, it's challenging because I have I feel like I, I'm not very I don't have a lot of common thoughts. Uh, I shouldn't say it like that. So last night, Monday Night Football. Um, all, there are all these takes about Hackett in the fourth down. Mm-hmm. To me, that wasn't the story. To me, they, they left 21 points on the board by being in the red zone three times and that's going. It's a game that the Broncos should have won. However, 
everyone is saying about the fourth and five. I want to go into fourth and five. And maybe, maybe, maybe I'm biased. I think McManus is one of the best um, and biggest leg kickers in, in, in the game. But I go off on a tangent. I would not have written that. And I probably uh, would not have had anybody read me because I really hate thinking like the herd or thinking like everybody else. Okay, actually, let's talk about this. I was watching that game last night, too. And if I were a columnist, immediately I was drawn to the plight of Geno Smith. And I was thinking about him as a jet washout. I was thinking of him getting in that fight with a jet teammate. I was thinking about him when I was he was in camp with the San Diego Chargers and was terrible. I was thinking about him taking that field and standing across from Russell Wilson and that they have these two opposite, totally opposite trajectories and that this had to be the singular greatest moment of his life, at least in sports. And that would have been my column. Is that a I dumb read that. No, I would have read that. That's that's great. I guess I, I'm thinking of the, the, you know, the whole thing was Russ in the homecoming and he cooked a little bit, but he couldn't cook. And that was, that was the whole thing. They didn't let Russ cook um, in the fourth um, when the game was on the line. So that's, that, that would have been a column that I would have read and, and totally different than than what I have been checking out this morning and afternoon. I would think as a columnist, you would want to find the most unique take uh, to stand out and have something fresh and unique. No? My opinion could totally be wrong. Okay. So I just think we're on Twitter so much. And as we're at the game, we see the scroll. And obviously Twitter is uh, what we have curated it to be. It's the voices that we want to hear. And, And so if everybody in your timeline is saying something you, you, you could think it's not as nefarious as, oh, I'm going to get clicked because this is a popular thing. It just could be uh, human nature that, oh, other people are thinking this, too. And maybe they're right. And, and sometimes maybe the group is right. It's interesting because in a way what you're saying is like everyone's on the timeline saying everyone's on our Twitter feed saying, I love vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I love vanilla. Ah! vanilla ice cream is awesome. Vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream. And then you could either serve them vanilla ice cream and have them say, this is great. I love vanilla ice cream. Thanks for giving me vanilla ice cream. Or you could say, I'm going to give you strawberry ripoff and it's going to be different. And maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't like it, but it'll be different. And you're saying what you try to do is give them strawberry ripple. So I'm not trying to be a contrarian just to be uh, contrary, yeah. but I, I just, you know, I, I do internalize a lot of, a lot of thoughts. I, I'm the third child. Um, I started talking later in my childhood because my siblings talked for me. I've just always just been someone who kept my thoughts to myself. But I see what others are thinking, and I just don't think that I am really part of the main line of thinking. And sometimes the main line of thinking is right. It's accurate. So there's nothing totally wrong with that. But my strawberry ripple is me not trying to be like, oh, let's be, let's move to the right. Let's zag. Just for zagging sake. I want to be accurate. I want to have columns that move people and make them think. And uh, sometimes I get it wrong, but I, I do want to be right for the sake of I want to be truthful and honest. There's definitely a thing in this country among sports fans. The power of Wilbon, Kornheiser, Stephen A., Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp now, blah, blah, blah. And like you kind of alluded to, this is my take. This is why I think it. I'm right. You're wrong. Next topic. This is my take. This is why I think it. you're right. You're right. Are you actually, instead of competing, I don't know if you, you would even do it, competing against other columnists or whatever, are you competing against 
the very idea of the hard, fast, quick take. I am. I just because that's just not me. That definitely works for some people. And especially if you're on that television and you're on that news cycle, you have five days of shows to fill. Like, I get it. You kind of have to yell um, fast and loud to get people's attention. Um, that's that's so that's not going to be me. And that's perfectly OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there there have been times like last week, I did not write a column simply because um, uh, I'm a big, fat, lazy baby, uh, but also because I couldn't find something to get fired up about. I, I have told this to countless students that I have to have some sort of an, an emotional reaction to something. Not that it makes me cry, but it doesn't make me laugh. Uh, does it make me angry? Does it make me think? I have to have something. And sometimes I, I do get it. You have to fake it till you make it and just put something <laughs> online. But by and large, I want to live by the, so this is what I believe. These are the facts that I have to back it up. And here's my opinion. Please read it. But when that doesn't happen, I don't want to force and just say, here's my tape. Take it. All right. If I'm your editor, <laughs> and you come to me and you're like, yeah, I just don't have a calm this week. I'm not entirely sure how I'm feeling about that. Have you had this discussion <laughs> where like, you're like, yeah, I just don't have anything this week. I just don't. And the editor is like, yeah, but. Thankfully we have, I think the, the greatest roster of sports columnists in um, print period with Sally Jenkins, Jerry Brewer, uh, Barry Spalugula. And um, on a, I guess a freelance basis, I don't want to get that wrong. Kevin Blackstone, John Feinstein. And then there's me. So, uh, and by the way, Adam Kilgore and Chuck Culpepper, they also can write uh, voicey and have perspectives. And so there are a lot of great writers and a lot of great columnists at our paper. Thankfully, they, help, they hold down the fort pretty much every week. I don't mind being the fourth columnist. I don't mind um, coming after way in the distance, a Sally or a Jerry or a Barry. So on a week where they filled the gaps, I was able to just get ready for this week. All right. So you have a new column came out today, September 13th. We're recording this sports fans should never leave early. Albert Pujols just showed us why your beginning was uh, by the time Albert Pujols hit his historic home run Sunday in Pittsburgh. I was on a southbound interstate 79 headed home. I missed him tattooing a 2-0 pitch in the top of the ninth inning into the distance toward the skyline and the intensely yellow Roberto Clemente bridge. I missed the ball landing somewhere between right center and igniting a scramble between these grown men who dived headfirst into the front row for the souvenir. I missed the proud caravan of St. Louis Cardinals fans, my people going bonkers and turning PNC Park into their still city vacation rental. Their shouts of Albert, 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 energized and otherwise dreary Sunday, all because they had the privilege of witnessing something special. That ball, Pujols, Hammer drove in the go-ahead runs in the Cardinals' comeback win. More importantly, it was the 697th home run, the fourth most in Major League history. And where was I during this unforgettable moment that those fans would be telling their kids and grandkids about until their dying day? Back in my car, thinking about how on my deathbed, I'll be recounting the September afternoon when I missed what should have been the hands-down greatest highlight in my life as a baseball fan. It should have been the vacation of my dreams. Everything lined up perfectly. Pujols came in the Sunday tied with Alex Rodriguez at 696 home runs. Instead of sitting out the last game of a road trip, he was in the lineup playing first base just like old times. He was even batting cleanup. Anything could happen, and I would be there in person to see it for myself. Ten-year-old me would have been so proud, thinking I, I turned out to be the coolest grown-up ever. But by the seventh inning, 42-year-old me kept wondering how traffic 
might be on the four and a half hour drive back to Washington. Candace. <laughs> I'm still, I hate it. I hate it. I hate what happened, but it turned out to be a calm. So. Wait, serious question. You're at this game. You're in Pittsburgh to see Albert Pujols. You've driven to Pittsburgh from Washington. To Literally. And just to see Albert. He's playing and you left. Why'd you leave? Is that it? All right. No, it, w- it was not just that. Okay. So it is four and a half hours back. And w- I u- always use Waze because I want to avoid tolls. So Waze takes you kind of the scenic route and you don't know how it's going to be on a Sunday. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to be on a Sunday. I don't make that trip all the time. I did not want to get stuck in West Virginia with the sun going down. I've only been through West Virginia in the day, and I don't know what West Virginia is all about. So I don't want to be stuck in, at night. That's, that's the honest truth. I wanted to drive when there was still daylight out. And so I gave myself to 4 p.m. because the Cardinals, they looked like they, they wanted to be elsewhere. Albert was 0 for 3. I saw him strike out, and I was like, he's got one more bat, but there's nothing going on. I got to get back on the road because I don't want to get stuck in these, you know, these states. That, I, that I'm not familiar with. I thought that was reasonable and I thought I was being responsible. That was, I, I'm still pissed about that decision. All right, I have some questions here. You did not mention the column specifically about your fear of being in West Virginia. I assume <laughs> an African-American woman in a car driving through a state that kind of has an iffy reputation, blah, 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 which is completely understandable. Why didn't you mention that in the column? Um, I didn't mention it I, because... Some of it, some of my words were getting cut. I was at 1300 and I just wanted to kind of stick to the story. Um, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to veer. I wrote it down in my notes. I actually wrote down. I didn't want to get stuck in West Virginia. Who wants to get stuck in West Virginia? Uh, but I didn't put in the story. Not not because I, I was scared and I might piss off West Virginians, but um, I wanted to kind of stick to the theme of uh, adulthood, adult teen and uh, the joy of being a, a childlike fan. All right. And then you wrote, our and I were the same age. <laughs> so I understand why that six pack of abs is now just a cask of lard. First of all, I don't play fantasy football, but if I started, I think the team name would be cask of lard. And I think I'd win. It. <laughs> um, okay. I'm being sincere when I say this, like, um, cause I've had this debate a million times with myself. That's kind of a mean sounding sentiment. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's correct. When you write stuff about people like his six pack has turned into a cask of lard. I know he's famous. He's probably not even going to read it and the whole thing, blah, 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 blah. Do you worry at all about sort of, I don't know, in this case, I guess, body shaming or sensitivity toward a person. He's a 42 year old guy. I mean, we do, we lose our six packs. It just freaking sucks. And I have like, how much do you worry about that? Did you even think about that line? Was it just like cask of lard next? When I wrote about his specifically about his belly over his belt, I, I kept thinking, how do I massage it? Cause I don't want to, I don't want to do that to a woman. And so equality, I'm not going to do that to a man. However, I guess I did do that to a man. Yeah, you sure but did. when I, when I wrote, when I wrote that line, I, I was not, that's, that's interesting that you bring that up. It's so specific, but I, I did not have Albert in my, my mind. I was saying, I understand how 40 something bodies change. I understand. Because I don't have the six pack. I have 
the cask of lard. Yes, the woman who walks around in mustard shirts and bicycle shorts. No, I would say I get it. I get the body transformation. I get the uh, the aging process. So I was not trying to say that, yo, Albert, right. you got a you got a keg you're working with there. Although I I guess I did say I did mention his belly, but you know it, it is a protruding belly, and he does look like somebody's uncle. I look like somebody's auntie um, in my advancing years, and. I'm, I'm proud to be 42. I'm sure he is proud, but he's I, what I wanted to really say is just it's it's great. When I was a when I was a kid, I loved all the short players, B.J. Armstrong, Moxie Bowes, and everyone that looked like they were a kid because I was like, oh, they're short right. and young and they're kids and they're playing professional sports. And something else I want to mention, I've been a sports reporter for so long. I'm not really a fan. Being a columnist has allowed me to um um, rediscover some fandom of my hometown um, specifically. I've, I've always been a fan of St. Louis sports, but you kind of have to put that to the back burner when you're covering like a team. Um, so this was just my, I really respect the mess out of Albert. I respect the mess out of Serena Williams and Sue Bird and people who are my age. I think it's so cool that they're my age. And they're still in the latter two, they're not doing anymore, but they were still essentially at the top of their game. So I just want to say um, recently, I guess before last season, Adam Vinatieri retired as a kicker and he was my age and he was the last athlete who was my age and it sucks. So now you know what happens? You'll see you start like Tom Brady's 45 and I'm like, well, I'm 50. So that's in the same range. Like we'd still be, he'd be in eighth grade. I'd be a senior. That's the same range. So even though, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about Brady through the years. Love the guy because he's still love playing. Love him now. Love him now. Yep. He's still playing. Um, so this is like my last time I can really like be a peer with yep. an athlete. Albert in this, how many more weeks he has left. And Yadi, Yadi, Yadi and Merlin is about to retire. Wayne Wright, maybe he's gone too, but they're still, they're all in my range. And that just, that makes me feel, that makes me feel good. It actually is a fascinating and understated topic of conversation among writers like, um, Cause when you start your peers with the athletes age wise, right? Like you mm-hmm. start, you're 23, they're 23 and you move up and you're always, there's always someone you can be like, Oh, Hey. And then there's like this almost mental adjustment where you're no longer cut. You are actually an older writer and you walk in and they see you, you couldn't like at age 50, I'm not going into a NBA or MLB clubhouse and saying like talking about Kendrick Lamar, because they're just going to think I'm trying to, you know, I like, you right. know, like, right. It just changes. Everything changes. Age is a fascinating thing that I hate. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wants to tell you about... Dad, it's me, Emmett. Casey left for college. This this is Jeff Perlman with my, my daughter, Casey, and... Dad, seriously, Casey's gone. But I'm here, and I wear Royal Retros gear, too. Look, I'm wearing the Arizona Wranglers jersey you bought me. Number 11, Greg Landry. Let's play catch, Dad. No, you're Casey, Casey Perlman. You do these ads every week, right, Casey? Every week, these ads. Casey, so happy. Daddy-daughter day. Casey, who? Mom, can you call CVS and see if dad's meds are in? So you write a lot about, in the column, about sort of your cardinal, you know, growing up a cardinal fan and your friend Wes, and there's a picture of you with Wes. And you mentioned, like, now that you're a columnist, you can sort of express this more. How far can you go, do you feel like, with expressing something towards St. Louis, towards St. Louis teams because of your background as a St. Louis fan? I've gone very far. <laughs> Earlier this year, um, 
when when the Los Angeles Rams made the Super Bowl, I did not care about uh, anything that was happening in the Super Bowl other than I can tell a story about my St. Louis and how the Rams left us. That was all that I was concerned about. St. Louis has, it's, it's a huge part of my identity is who I am. All my family still lives there. I love it. Would I live there now? Probably not. But I, you know, it's, it's who I am. I, I still, I still represent and um, the Rams making the, the Super Bowl that year was just my entry to say San Kroenke is the devil and this is what he did to my city. And I want to, I want to be a, a champion for my city. So I, I, go, I have gone pretty hard in the paint for St. Louis. And even before I was a columnist, um, I was given a couple opportunities, I think four, four opportunities to write perspectives. And when the Blues made the Stanley Cup, I wrote about that. And how, you know, my city has fallen on some some rough times and how this Stanley Cup was unifying for a city that's pretty, pretty segregated. So and anytime I can write about St. Louis, I will. However, I really, man, I don't like writing about myself. Again, I have led pretty, pretty standard, boring life. Um there's nothing, there's nothing really interesting to really write about. So I don't want to, I think that's some of it is lazy when you just start writing about yourself. And I'm only one year in. And I think I've told all the stories that I possibly can tell about myself. So I need to wash on that. I just want to say as someone from St. Louis, you, not me. Um, one of the last concerts I went to before the pandemic with my son and wife was Flo Rida, TLC, and... Your Nelly, favorite, your favorite son, Nelly. And he was so bad. He was like, <laughs> he was lip syncing about 90 percent of it. And like, oh, my, it was kind of sad. And my son, who's oh a big hip hop fan, is like, I don't I don't know. This is not that he, good. Did, he did not lip sync at. Uh, he was just at the um, the Celtics Warriors finals. And I think they had him for like game. I can't remember. Maybe he was there for the Eastern Conference finals. But he, he sounded pretty good. Did he? So hot. Yeah. Sorry. Would you like to continue to the whole Nelly catalog? I, no. I, I better not. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. The piece you wrote back then was the Rams might be winners, but two communities knew what, know what has been lost. February 11th, 2022. You went back to St. Louis. This is right around when the Rams are making the Super Bowl and everyone's loving them in L.A. and blah, blah, blah. And you said, when I visited my hometown this weekend on a cold afternoon, I peered through the stadium's windows. This is the abandoned Dome of America Center. The halls are empty, much like the broken hearts of all St. Louisans who no longer have a football team to claim as their own. Empty, just like the streets of a downtown that you would expect to be buzzing with a business casual lunch crowd. And it's a really sad, depressing, excellent, but depressing piece about sort of what the Rams moving has done to your hometown and the emptiness of it all. And everyone's writing about the Rams and everyone's writing about the Super Bowl. And here's the Super Bowl. And this is this great story. Super Bowl. Yay. Why would you pick the depressing story? Why would you hang out with Christopher Hill? <laughs> Which I love, by because, the way. Because I'm still salty over it. I just thought for this story, not only did St. Louis lose something, but the new home for the Rams, they lost something too, Inglewood. Inglewood, mm-hmm. by, by having this billion dollar, I think it's two point, I can't remember the, the count, but this billion dollar spaceship plopped into a community. And when you go there, you see a neighborhood and then all of a sudden, bam, the new Rams house. I I really wanted to tell a story of loss, what St. Louis lost 
and what um, Inglewood loses in its soul. And while there is progress happening, sometimes the progress is, is not for the people who have lived in Inglewood and have made it their home. And we, we talk, and I, I wanted to really get into um, people who were affected, um, whether they were homeowners, and you would think, oh, great, you know, your, your, the price of your home goes up, so does your taxes. Someone told me, and it was it, it just, it's so simple, but it's, it's so smart. Someone told me there's like, just because you live in a million dollar house doesn't mean that you're a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to, to make it and survive in one of the last bastions of Los Angeles where it was affordable, affordable for black and brown people. Um, but now a lot of them have been, uh, especially if they're renters, um, a lot of people have had to move inland. And this was their home. And it's no longer their home because it's now the Rams house. The craziest untold story nationally is Inglewood in that stadium. It is infuriating. It is like, no, it's great because it'll create jobs. Well, no, it won't. And also, if they does, right. it'll be shitty jobs at the Applebee's that you're putting not in. Career, not career no, jobs. It sets bullshit. It's so disgusting. You're going to drive out homeowners all in the name of my least favorite word in America, gentrification. You push yeah. people away, almost always minority. You move them, make them move into a different area. You make promises that you never keep. It's all for a fucking football stadium. Um, what I'm interested in is, so here you are, you're an African-American woman in a field that has largely been white men. Do you feel being a black woman writing a column, does it come with certain unfair expectations? Like, oh, she's only going to write about blank from white people or why aren't you writing more about blank from African-American people? Does it come with certain expectations? And do you feel that at all? That's a great question. And going back to social media and I'm not always on Twitter, um, but sometimes I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of one that was really specific, but there there have been some times where when I had um, an opinion about uh, an athlete who happens to be African-American. And there have been some African-American people who hop in my mentions and say uh, or insinuate that I'm only (laughs) doing this to, you know, tear a brother down. I'm only doing this because that's what the Washington Post wants me to say, that I'm like a a Candace Owens or a Stacey Dash. So that's not hurtful, but I do see that. And it's like, wow, you really don't know me. And I I don't understand how that can just be somebody's knee-jerk reaction, is that I, I am trying to tear down like another Black man. And it's funny, on the flip side, not all readers are like this, so I definitely don't want to make it seem like that, but there are some angry white men in this world, man. And <laughs> with their access to email, if I write about a Serena Williams, like, oh, you're only writing about her because I can't, I cannot, you know, it's, it's so predictable. It's such a caricature yep. that you would think that no one is going to be, um, no one's going to, you know, stoop to that sort of cartoonish level of villainary. Um, but <laughs> some people are just angry. And the only thing that they can see for me is that I am a black woman. Uh, and again, that's not all readers. And uh, I don't read the comments of my stories because sometimes it just seems like a cesspool. And why, why 
you know, I'm, I don't know these people. I'm not going to remember these people. So why engage? But if they send me an email, chances are I'm going to see it. Right. And uh, if it's only about my race and gender, like I, it's, it's just, it blows, it doesn't blow my mind, but it's still, it's like, wow, you are so predictable. I just think like, all right, so this comes from being a white guy. It's almost like the John Rocker thing where white guy, white people tend to think <laughs> other white people are always thinking the same thing they are. And I'm like, yeah, no, not <laughs> right. it's like, I guarantee you there's like, a decent chunk of people who are like, well, she only got that job because she's a black, you know, blah, 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 black woman, diverse, right. Washington Post, liberal, blah, 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 you know? hundred percent. And um, I was wondering though, like, does, which by the way, you're like, you've become like my favorite columnist. I think you're freaking great. I think your columnists Aww. are awesome. I think you were made to do this despite any of your yeah. observations. Uh, I hate sounding cliche and this is kind of a cliche question, but race, gender, does it come with a responsibility? Do you feel like, in a way you are writing for X or you have to do something because of something or that this comes with a certain weight because other people haven't, because for years and years, people who look like you just didn't have this job at all. I think the responsibility is twofold. So one of the reasons, and I think it was the first reason when, when I started to shift my, my, my thinking about becoming a columnist and saying yes, was that, uh, so when I was growing up, I didn't see black women in sports writing. Um, I saw Robin Roberts. I saw, um, you know, Hannah Storm, who is not black, but, you know, she was a woman. So I, my female role models in sports were on television. Yeah. With my thinking, because uh, there there's um, Shalise Mansa. There's uh, I think I think we're the only two right now. But with my thinking, wait, you were about to go on a roll. You were about to go on a roll and name them all. Then you're like, oh, wait, there's only two of us. Well, daily, daily major outlets. I think there's only two. She's at Yahoo and she does. Uh, yeah, she does a great job. So I was I was thinking with this platform, with the Washington Post platform, that girls and young um, women, um, African-American young women in high school and college could see me and say, oh, you know what? I could do that. Because they don't have to look on television to see, like, it's great. I feel like every telecast, every sports telecast, telecast, you see the, the female sports reporter, uh, sideline reporter, which is great. But I think it's more powerful when you have like Amina Kimes, who is an analyst. And as I actually learn when she's on television, and she's not a screamer, she's, um, she's really good at her job. So when you see a person like Amina Kimes, who is not the eye candy, she is there because she knows football and she can teach you about football and she's got, she's got thoughts and opinions. So, and, and Monica McNutt, who is great. great. So I like seeing great. women in those type of roles. Monica McNutt can do it all. I think she is spectacular. Yep. Um, and, and hopefully women and girls, black women and girls um, who want to be in this field and want to write and may not me, I was a broadcast journalism major in college. Um, I'm obviously not on television now because I didn't feel like that was my path. So if they want to write, you can totally do this. It's doable. Look, I did it. If I can do it, you totally can do it. So that responsibility was important for me. The other one is I want to be able to uh, write from a perspective that's not always in our paper. Jerry's great. Who, you know, Jerry, Jerry's a black man. Sally's great. Sally's a white woman. Barry, white man. And I'm the only black woman. I'm glad to have a perspective that may be different 
than Sally may have about a Simone Biles or a Serena Williams and uh, express that. But then again, I don't want to be the, the standard bearer for all Black people. We're not monolithic. I can't think for everybody. I can't speak for everyone. And when it is time to, to write something very specific about uh, Blackness or Black, uh, Black women, I try to just keep it very, what I know. I've been, I've been in this body in this, uh, in this, uh, I've been a black woman for 42 years. So I know some things, but I don't want to pretend that, uh, I know everything, uh, about what Serena or Simone or any other black woman may be thinking in that moment. But I, there are some, there are some truths. There are some shared experiences that I, I, that I can write about. Okay. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go controversial take on you on something you just said. Okay. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I was watching uh, football, maybe it was the other day, maybe, it was, I don't know. And I saw one of the sideline reporters and it was a woman and she was blonde and and they're about to go back to the game and she gets the coach for the contractual two question thing they have to do. The coach says absolutely yeah. nothing of interest. She says back to you guys in the booth um, before the game, they'll always be like, you know, today's game, blah, blah, blah. It's Troy and Joe and whoever, Samantha, I don't know who it was. And every game has one of those women. They're almost always white, almost always. They're almost always blonde. Um, They do almost nothing. And I don't know if that's helpful or harmful. Like, why aren't they in the booth? Why aren't there more women? There are almost no women in the booth. Calling a football game is not rocket science. And why aren't there more women? Why aren't there more Doris Burks out there? Like, there's more of them, but why aren't there more? Of course, yeah. And like, is that really a great role model situation where every NFL sideline has the woman, the woman who's part of the crew, And that's her job to ask a two second question and give updates from the trainer. Hey, some people want that shine. Some people want to be uh, just on television and do that. So if that's if you are on that path and you want to be I wanted to be a sideline reporter for NBC, NBA and NBC. Uh, And then I also wanted my my own show inside stuff. So, oh, man, I thought that was the coolest thing. And then I want to be on ESPN and be an anchor. So I've, I've been all over the place with my dreams of, you know, quote, being famous and being known and being on television and thinking that that was it. That was not it for me. So I guess for some people, um, yeah, great. Because there are there are people, men and women, who just kind of want that shine. So good for them. But is, is it good or bad? I'm glad for the Dorises. I'm glad for the Monicas. It's, that's what I want to see more of. I'm just saying there's literally no reason, zero, literally 0.0% reason right. why women can't be in NFL booths calling NFL games because what I learn, I don't, Candace, you're going to, you're going to hate that I say this because you're going to think it sounds, what I hear from most analysts, and it's always an X player, some X player, it's Rich Gann, yeah. whoever. I just feel like I can, I can tell you those things too. I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you, Jeff Perlman. Yeah. Um, let me wrap this by asking you, I need, I probably asked you this four and a half years ago, but four and a half years have passed. What's your worst engagement with an athlete? I think it was my first year on the beat covering the Wizards. And the, the Wizards had made it to the, uh, Wizards had made it to uh, first round playoff series against Atlanta. Can't remember which game it was, but Dennis Schroeder was having a series. And the matchup is Dennis Schroeder and John Wall. And I tweeted something along the lines of, uh, maybe one of these days, John Wall will defend Dennis Schroeder. Maybe. Um, I didn't at him. 
Uh, this was during the game. Sometime after the game, maybe he searched his name. Maybe somebody sent it to him. Who knows? But he quote retweeted it and put LOL. And, all, you know, all of the sycophants and the, um, and, and, and the fanboys who just want, um, you know, John's attention just flooded my, my mentions. And that, that was not fun. Um, had to smooth that over with, uh, with John. But to be honest with you, I'm sure there are other situations. And that, that did teach me that, you know, sometimes you don't have to make the snarky comment on, on Twitter. And these guys are very sensitive. And I'm not trying to be anybody's buddy, but I have to have John Wall. I have to be able to talk to John Wall for my job. I have to be able to have him answer my questions and not um, stonewall me. I'm sure there's another situation, but to be honest, Jeff, a lot of this stuff I try not to um, think about too hard and just kind of keep it moving. I just want to say, April 24th, 2017, one day Wall might actually try to defend <laughs> John Wall, LLL. Oh, you wrote, one day he might actually try to defend Dennis Schroeder. Space, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and his teammate, because uh, Marching Gortat, that was another one, Marching Gortat, uh, try to jump in the mentions and, and get on me too. For some reason, um, he had beef with me from early in the season because he threw his teammates under the bus um, in front of a scrum. There were it was not just me in Chicago. He threw his teammates under the bus talking about the bench and um, the bench wasn't being helpful. This is early in the season. Right. I reported it. I tweeted it out, and he took it against me. And our relationship was never the same then, but he's, he tried to like dunk on me. Like, okay, buddy. All right. Wait, let me ask you a final, final question. Like when Twitter came along and when we all first started using it, it felt like sort of tweeting out about John Wall and defense felt like, eh, it's kind of cute and kind of funny and who cares, right? Yeah, yeah. Now I kind of feel like that's a wasted bullet. Like that actually, I'd look back and I'd be like, I was a wasted, that was kind of a stupid wasted bullet. If I were you, I'd just right. like, what a wait. that was a way. Why did I waste goodwill on a fleeting tweet. So that's not worth it. Do you, do you think of Twitter differently than maybe you did back then when you were covering the wizards? 100%. I was so more engaging. Um, and it's, it's, it's happened over time when I was with the Indiana Pacers, uh, live tweeting was huge. And, um, just to be frank, I think the Pacers fan base, um, took to that more than the wizards fan base. So I was really on Twitter. I, would tweet everything, but there was a good view too. We were 41 home games. I was a courtside. So there are things if a guy is coming to the scores table and he's saying something or Frank Vogel is um, gesturing, that's something that, may, that they may not pick up on the camera. So I, like, I'm going to tweet about it. I was very active on Twitter. That started to wane in DC. And really after that, you were right. It was, it was, <laughs> It wasn't horrible. Yeah, it, was, it, was just like, it was an observation. It was a little snarky. It was a little snarky. And, and you're right. Should I paste uh, 140 characters for a tweet that probably got little engagement before John, um, you know, blew it up. So over time, I, I stopped. I really stopped live, a live tweeting, even as a beat reporter. And now I'm rarely on Twitter. I, I need to see what's going on uh, just in the world. And, and read and find links to um, for stories and stuff to read and, and every now and then. But I am I, 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 I try to, you know, sometimes I, I, I watch I watch because 
basketball is still my favorite sport, the NBA. I love that league. There's so many um, characters and it's a lot of action. I still love that league. Now that I'm not all the way in it, I will make an observation. Um, my snarkiest tweet probably this year was um, tweeting a picture of Jason Tatum's jersey, which is he's a number zero. And I said the, uh, the number of playoff wins this year of the Los Angeles Lakers and Brooklyn Nets. And it was zero. No engagement whatsoever, a, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not a big live tweeter anymore. Uh, Candace, you've come a long way, baby, since uh, four and a half years ago. <laughs> and um, I love your columns. I do. I love your takes. I think they're original. I think they're smart. I'm a big fan, as you know. I, t- I text you every now and then, and I'm like, great column, great column. You're probably like, ugh, enough. You do text. And I appreciate it, Jeff. Um, I really, I really uh, admire you and your work. And it's a huge thing that you, uh, you know, be in your position and to still love giving people little people like me some shine on oh your God. on your podcast and on your twitter feed it means a lot and we appreciate i appreciate it candace you're so not a little thing you're a columnist for washington post you're a star so look. I'm pretty i'm pretty dang important i know i was just trying to play humble oh, nice. <laughs> i love me <laughs> it's the candace show well thank you for doing this i do appreciate it I want to thank today's guest, Candace Buckner, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Candace on Twitter at Candace D. Buckner and read her work in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this and I rely on word of mouth. Also, a note, my new book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, is available everywhere October 25th, but can be pre-ordered at all spots now. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.
I want to thank today's guest, Ruby Kramer, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Ruby on Twitter at Ruby Kramer and read her work in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. And a reminder, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, comes out October 25th and is available for pre-order now. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.